so we're in this series called the five solas. And if you haven't been here or you're not familiar with that term, the, the word sola, S-O-L-A, is a Latin word that means alone. And this refers, this five solas, refers to five affirmations um, that define true Christian belief. Anything that is true for Christianity is, is neatly categorized under these five headings. Now, uh, what they do is they, not only that they, do they define true Christian belief, but they also expose any kind of false teaching, any kind of heresy. All of its many forms are exposed by these five solas or these five beliefs or five affirmations. Now, I want you to know that that, that may sound very rigid to you. I understand that. But I, wanna, I want to affirm to you that Christians, people who love Jesus, people who are truly followers of Christ can hold a lot of different opinions about a lot of different things, and that's okay. They can have different opinions on the method of baptism. They can have different opinions on church government or how the spiritual gifts should operate. They can have different opinions of the chronology of the last days before Jesus comes. But listen to me carefully. If we fail to embrace, while all that is up for grabs and there's, you can interpret those things differently. If we fail to embrace, fully embrace any of these five truths that we're talking about, we cease to have any basis on which to call ourselves Christians. I know that's heavy, that's harsh, but that's why these are so important. That's why we've dedicated these six weeks to talking about these, because they're just that important. These five affirmations are a belief in the authority of Scripture alone, the centrality of Christ alone, the power of grace alone, the necessity of faith alone, and the overarching supremacy of the glory of God alone. Those are the five non-negotiables of Christian belief. They're the five non-negotiables of the church. There is no wiggle room within those five truths. In the 2,000 year history of the church, you would find, and I, I, I test me on this, you would find that every single heresy that has ever taken root inside the church was because of the abandonment or the alteration of one of these five truths. Every single one. Every departure from true Christianity that that winds up being uh, false, heretical, in error, whatever it is, every departure from true Christianity happens by neglecting at least one of these foundational realities. And that's not all. These five truths are dramatically interwoven. None of them stand on their own. You can't have three or four of them right and neglect one or two of them. It is an all or nothing deal. Let me give, let me give you an example. Last week, we tried out the new kid. His name is Paul Landers. And did he do a fantastic job or what? It was incredible. Yeah, go ahead. It was incredible. He, he, 
He talked last week about how some of us feel like we're VHS Bible readers. We still get the message, but we're, you know, maybe we don't get all the, the depth and, and high definition stuff. And he talked about 4K Bible readers. I'm going to tell you, Paul Landers is a 4K Bible guy. That was incredible, the detail. If you haven't listened to the message, go back and listen to that. But he talked to us last week about sola scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone. And what he was saying is that scripture alone is inspired, or other words says that it's authored by God, that it is inherent, meaning reliable and without error, that it's clear, it's sufficient, and it was affirmed by Christ. So right belief, if you're going to have right belief, it recognizes the Bible as the final Word. There is no person that who is believing rightly about God and His kingdom who has any questions about the the authority and the and the per- perfection of Scripture. It just can't happen. As Martin Luther said, as Paul quoted him last week, he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. He didn't recognize any other authority alongside the word of God that, that, that could, could sway his opinion on what God's word clearly said. And because of this, because of this, I'm trying to point out to you how that all of these five solas work together. Because of this, the other truths of Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and the glory of God alone are dependent upon the authority of Scripture alone. Without a scriptural basis. In other words, if you didn't find those other four solas in the Scriptures, they would be absolutely meaningless. Think about that for a minute. That if, if the, if the scriptures, which are the basis for everything we believe, that's why we started with Sola Scriptura. If, the, if they were not affirming the things that we're going to teach you in the next four weeks, then it wouldn't matter at all what they said. Because there would be no foundation, there would be no basis in the truth. And that's why we start, that's why we began this, this series with the inspiration, the inerrancy, the clarity, the sufficiency of scripture alone. Let me show you how this worked in Jesus' life. Jesus, one day, as he often did, had a dispute with some of his opponents, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders. And he says this word to it, these words to them in John 5.39. He says, you search the scriptures, and boy, they did. These guys were experts in the Old Testament. They knew it up one side and down the other, had large portions of it, some of them, all of it memorized. Now wrap your brain around that. 39 books in the Old Testament, these guys had a lot of them memorized. And he says, you search the scripture because in them, you think that in them, you have eternal life. They thought that they had everything figured out because they had Old Testament law down to a T. But then listen to what Jesus says. But it is they, these Old Testament scriptures, that bear witness of me. So he's saying that the basis of his authority isn't independent of scripture. It's based entirely in scripture. Y'all following me? Today we're going to focus on the centrality of Christ alone. And I want you to understand before we begin, as as I've said now, that that centrality is asserted by the Bible, by God's holy word. So Christ's centrality is vital to the life of the church corporately. As a a church, we gather because Christ is central. 
But it's also the essence of being a true deliverer, a true believer rather, individually. It's, it's what makes us believers is to believe that Christ is central. Oftentimes you'll hear so-called Christian scholars, and let me put Christian in air quotes. And these scholars will challenge or openly deny the deity or the humanity of Christ. And worse, they'll, they'll attempt to put him on equal footing with other religious leaders like Muhammad or Buddha. He's just one of many choices available to the human race for to scratch their religious itch. And they'll say things like, all roads lead to the same place. And their meaning is that all religion has the same goals. Whatever that goal is, to make you a better person, to get you to heaven, to, to give you inner peace. Whatever the goal is, that the, the assertion of these so-called Christian scholars is that, that, that it's all heading the same direction. So don't, don't worry about it too much. But what I want you to, what I want you to clearly understand is if you take this book, that description of Christianity is not a description that the Bible supplies. That is not what the Bible says. Jesus said famously, famously in John 14, 6, He said, I am the way. Singular. I am the way. I am the truth. There is no other truth outside of Jesus. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. You will not find life outside of Jesus Christ. And this is his own assertion. This is what Jesus is saying about himself. Christ, Jesus. Some of you, and it happens to all of us, I'm not judging anybody, but some of us are so familiar. We have become so accustomed to thinking about Jesus in ways that, that take away from who He really is. He's just part of our life. He's part of our lives as Americans. He's part of our lives as people who go to church on Sundays. And, and you know, he's, he's just kind of there. But I want you to hear this morning to really think about who Jesus is. Christ Jesus is one of a kind. There is no other like Him that has ever been or ever will be. Jesus is one of a kind. Think about it. He is fully God. When Jesus the baby laid in the manger, it should strike us with terror and strike us with awe that the God who spoke stars into existence is laying in a feeding trough. That was God laying there. But more than that, the fact that he remained fully God did not diminish from the fact that in his life on earth, he was fully man. Fully man. If he was cut, he would bleed. If he was wounded emotionally, he would cry. He he was fully human with all of the the, the benefits and the, and the, the, the bugs that go along with that except for sin. Simultaneously, at the same time, 100% God and 100% man. Now, any of you math scholars will say that that doesn't add up. You're right. It's a mystery. Jesus is one of a kind. He was 100% God, 100% man, but he was not more of one and less of the other. Jesus was the obedient son, and he modeled in his life flawless obedience Flawless servanthood. This is what Philippians chapter 2 says. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible. It says, Therefore God 
And, 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 and the therefore is, is Paul has been talking about how he obediently laid down his life as a sacrifice for all humanity. And it says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is Paul saying? He's saying, he's shouting that Jesus Christ has no equal. Muhammad, Buddha, they have long since been rotting in their graves. Along with 1,500 years of popes. But at this moment, at this very moment, as the rain falls, as the light shines, as you're listening to my words, at this very moment, Christ Jesus sits alive. He sits alive, enthroned at the Father's right hand. And at this very moment... He is making intercession for you. He's making intercession for myself. He's making intercession for all he has purchased with his blood at this very moment. All religions, every one of them, claim to help man along on his search for God. But only, only Christianity Unique among all the religions of the world, only Christianity tells of a God who came searching for man. The the religions of the world make unending prescriptions to tell people how to be accepted through God. Do this and God will will, will accept you. And, And it happens through faulty rites and ceremonies and sacrifices. But only Jesus... Only Jesus, Christus Solus, Christ alone gave his life to grant the very worst of sinners his very own righteousness, making them acceptable through his work and his merit and through none of our own. That's the glory of the gospel, folks. That Jesus didn't wait for you to clean up your act. He came looking for you. And it doesn't matter what the pages of your history book look like. Jesus Christ will accept you and, and, and look at you with his own righteousness. He, and think about what I'm saying there. He will look at you with all of your history and all the garbage that's there, just like in mine. And he will look at you and he will say, you are as righteous as God when you believe in him. You just think about that for a minute. There's not a soul in here, myself included, who would ever have the audacity to look on our own lives and say we're as righteous as God. None of us. But that, brothers and sisters, is the miracle of the cross. It's the miracle of a cross that God made him who had no sin to become sin for us, so that in Him, the Bible says, you and I, yeah, remember what you did five years ago, ten years ago, last night, that you and I would be the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, you're never going to be that. You're not even going to come close outside of Christ. But in Christ, you will be the righteousness of God. So in our text... 
Paul tells the Colossian church about the uniqueness and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. It is his great declaration of our message today, Solus Christus, Christ alone. And he tells us several things about Jesus Christ. First, the very first thing he tells us is that he is God, that he is creator, that he is sovereign, that he is eternal. All of these attributes prove the divinity. In other words, the divine nature, the godness of Jesus Christ. But as the holy God man, Christ is the undisputed head of the church. He's the model of our future resurrection. He's the mediator that stands between God and mankind making reconciliation for us. And, he, and, and He's working by His mediation. He is working salvation for us. And so we're going to take time this morning to look at each of these. First, Paul begins this beautiful passage by saying, He, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. What is Paul saying there? See, God told Moses back in uh, in Exodus, rather, God told Moses that no one could see his face and live. You know, people all often will say that they had some vision of God or something, and and it blows my mind because in the in the Bible, whenever somebody sees God, they fall down like dead men. And God is saying, if you ever look directly into his face, it would kill you. His holiness, when when exposed to our sinfulness, it would destroy us entirely. Our corruption is so great and his purity is so great, they just would collide in disastrous results. But, But as you consider that, think of this. Paul calls Jesus Christ the image of the invisible God. What he's indicating there is that what was once unseen because it was impossible to look on has now been made known to us in Jesus Christ. The God whose holiness would wipe us out without a, a, a second chance has now been made known to us in Jesus Christ. John begins his first letter, his first epistle with these words. Listen to this. That which was from the beginning. Talking about Jesus' eternity there, how he's eternal in nature. That which was from the beginning, listen, which we have heard. Paul was a, uh, John was a disciple. And he had sat in the audience of Jesus. The Bible tells us that at, at the Last Supper, G, uh, John was actually leaning on Christ. He said, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was, now watch his words, that life was made manifest and we have seen it. Now you might read those words a thousand times, not have any ripple effect in your soul. But I'm telling you, John realizes this is a big deal. Can you imagine if you had lived at that time and you had known Jesus, maybe you'd been one of his disciples and you thought he was a great teacher endowed with, by God with all kinds of power to do miracles and stuff. And then can you imagine all the times that you gave him a hug or you shook his hand and all of these things. And then after his resurrection, you realize that was not just another guy, that was God. 
Can you imagine the effect on your psyche to realize you'd been having lunch with God? I'm serious. Can you imagine the effect on your the depths of your soul to know that, that at night when you were out camping, you bedded down with God? That would blow your mind. And the tragedy of us is that we just kind of yawn our way through that reality. He said, we've, we've looked upon him, we've touched him with our hands, we've heard him. We, he was made manifest, we've seen it. And he said, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. Eternal life was with the Father. And now it was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. Now watch this. And indeed, our fellowship is. That's present tense. So this Jesus that is now seated at the right hand of God, reigning with, over all the universe, Paul, uh, John says, we touched him, we heard him, we, we sat with him, we ate with him, and now we are giving you the word of the gospel so that you may, present tense, also have fellowship with him. That's the message of the gospel. That the, we who were so far apart are now united by our faith in Jesus Christ, where we also have the same fellowship with the creator of the universe. John also says that in, in, his, in his gospel, he says that no one has seen God, but Jesus has made him know, known. What he's portraying there is that Jesus has put God himself on display, this un. This, this God that was too holy to look at, Jesus came as a man and he made us able to look on him. And Jesus told the disciples on John 14, he said, if, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the writer of Hebrews takes all these thoughts further and he says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. He's, it's almost the idea here is almost an identical twin that, that, you know, an identical twin, you look at him, and, and you can't tell the two apart. And, and that's what, that's what uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's the exact imprint. If you've seen one, you've seen the other. Jesus has shown us God in himself. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says that he's the firstborn of all creation. Now this, this people have tripped over this for centuries. But to call Jesus the firstborn of all creation does not indicate that Jesus had a physical beginning, that he was, he was created sometime, sometime in eternity past. It doesn't indicate that because the Bible clearly says that he was uh, uh, or he has been from all time. We know that, or all eternity. So he didn't have a physical beginning. The Bible's clear in all, a lot of other places that he didn't. But he is eternal. We'll talk about more that, about that in a second. But rather, when it says the firstborn of all creation... Paul is using words available to him to point out that Jesus, he's speaking rather of Jesus' rights and Jesus' worthiness. Now in ancient cultures, it's not so much the, the case these days. Things are pretty equitable these days, usually in legal systems. But in ancient cultures, the firstborn got the lion's share of the inheritance. If you were the firstborn, then, then you were, you were uh, doing pretty well. You got lined up to get the best stuff. And he also, universally, the firstborn would also take over the family business when the time came. The father passes, he gets too old, the, the firstborn takes over the business. And, and more importantly, in the days of kings, 
It was the firstborn who inherited the throne and the royal honors of his father. Now, how does this apply to Jesus? What Paul's saying when he calls him the firstborn of creation, he's saying that Jesus is the inheritor of all creation. That God created, and, and, and the day is coming where, where the Bible says in Revelation that, that the proclamation will be made, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. Jesus will inherit it all someday. He will be the one who inherits it all. And, and, and He'll inherit all of its worship. What the scripture we read earlier, of things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth, all of it's going to go to Jesus. But it's not going to be in place of the Father, because the Father never dies. Father never goes anywhere, but it's going to be right alongside of Him. The reward of His suffering will be bestowed on, his, on Jesus, and what a reward it is. It will be all of creation and all the worship that is due Him. Paul goes on, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Paul attributes the work of creation to the Son, not just the Father. And he does this to reaffirm that Jesus is fully God, as we've said over and over. And more than that, if He was at the creation, that He's not just fully God, He always has been. Genesis 1.1, you all know it, declares, In the beginning, comma, God. And so it would not be a, a, a sacrilege to read that in the beginning, comma, Jesus. He created all things. Jesus created all things in heaven and on earth. Jesus exercised, Jesus the Son exercised creative thought, creative energy, forming the universe and everything in it. He also, though the Bible tells us, created things visible and invisible, meaning not only material things, but the immaterial domain as well, heaven, hell, angels, and other spiritual realities. And as the creator, Jesus has ultimate authority over everything. Did you hear that? The creator has the right. If I build... I've used this analogy before, but if I build in my home, in my free time, I don't have these kind of skills or talents, but if I build a work of art that is stunning, maybe I'm a sculptor or a painter, and I build a work of art that's stunning, and and, and everyone um, uh, you know in the art world says, "Man, this is fantastic! This is you're the new Da Vinci! This is incredible!" and we gotta we gotta put this in a museum, and I say, "Nope," and I set it on fire. Just set it ablaze. Can I be tried in any court for doing that? Why? Belongs to me. And so Jesus is the sovereign over his creation. Now you think, wow, you're saying that Jesus is going to set everything on fire? Yep, someday. Someday. But not until he harvests everyone that belongs to him. And that's the good news. That's the good news. Jesus has ultimate authority over him. And Paul proves that with his next phrase. He says not only that all things were created through him, but he says that all things were created. Watch this phrase, because it should really shake us in the way we approach the world around us. He says that all things were created not just through him, but for him. That everything was created for Jesus. And this proves 
beyond any reasonable doubt, Jesus' sovereignty, your family, your job, your money, your relationships, your, the, the world around you, the stuff you own, all of it was created, not just through Jesus' power, it certainly was, but it was created for Him. So we, we, we have to take a pause and look at our lives and we say, are we, are we clinging to what does not belong to us? It wasn't created for us. It was created for Him. Now, Jesus doesn't go around like some kind of divine tax man just taking all your stuff. What he does is he gives us stuff to enjoy. But what the problem is that most of us approach this reality like we get to decide what he gives us to enjoy. And it starts for believers by saying, Jesus, if I have you, I have everything, so you can have everything else, and you direct me in how to use it. Y'all following me? We say, Jesus, you're, it, it all belongs to you. It's created for you, so you tell me how to use it. I'm not going to tell you, you have, you can have this little portion, Jesus, and I'll take this portion, and then, uh, you know, you, uh, just hopefully that satisfies you and you'll get off my back, Jesus. No. Jesus told the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and come follow me. Now, I'm not suggesting that you guys have a yard sale this afternoon. You can't with the rain anyway. If you could, then maybe, no, I'm kidding. But, but I'm not suggesting you do that. What I'm suggesting is that you, in your heart today, and then again tomorrow, then on Tuesday, and on Wednesday, Thursday, y'all following me? You give it all to Jesus. Now, why did I say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, etc.? Because if you're like me, you have a tendency to Sunday morning in worship, listening to a sermon, it's all yours, Jesus! Then you knock on Jesus' door on Monday and say, I'm going to need that back. <laughs> if I could just kind of take that thing back, that, that habit, that thought, that resentment, that unforgiveness, that, that, that uh, idol, that money, that whatever, I'm going to give that, if I could just take that back. So every day, Paul said, I die daily. Every day we're just laying it at King Jesus, Solus Christus. We, we lay it at Jesus alone at his feet. So everything was created for him. This proves Jesus' sovereignty. Jesus is the king, and he alone. This is what I want you to know this means. The, the fact that it says it's for him, Jesus alone is the goal of creation. Did you know that? Every, everything that has been created is careening towards a day where Jesus will be the ultimate authority over it all, where there will be no more Sinners shaking their fist in the face of God. There will no, will no, be no more disease and coronavirus and, and corruption in politics. All of that stuff will be over. And this is how Paul in Romans describes that day. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's talking about the moment when God's perfect purposes are revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, it didn't want to be, but because of him who subjected it, in hope, in hope, in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth 
until now. The kingdom is on the move. The kingdom is advancing in all of creation. Everything in it is longing for that day. If you're concerned about the environment, if you're concerned about politics, if you're concerned about any of those things, I'm telling you, all of creation is right there with you. It's begging for the day when Jesus will liberate everything and he'll be the king of everything. All creation is waiting for this glorious culmination of God's plan through Jesus when death is no more and everything in creation is made brand new and set free from its tendency towards decay and deterioration, including all of us who believe. The promise of you, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, is that someday you too will be made brand new. And all your tendency towards decay and deterioration, whether in your body, whether in your soul, whether in your spirit, it will be done away with and you will be completely brand new. Only through the power, soulless Christus, Christ alone. Paul goes on, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is eternal. And as an eternal God, the one that has no beginning and will have no end, He has eternal purposes both for His creation and His people. We've been talking about that. But it's important because there are many voices lining up on the news every single night that tell us that the earth is on the verge of a cataclysm. Coronavirus. Global warming. International terrorism. We're all going to die a terrible death. Woohoo! Aren't you glad you came to church today so you can be filled with hope? There's a bullet aimed at your head that's going to take you out any minute now. But as I thought about that, and thought about these words that He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. My mind was transported back to being a little bitty kid in Sunday school. And singing this little song. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. And the beauty of being a believer in Christ Jesus alone is that that's not just a simple kid song to us. That's not just a simple thing where we say, yeah, yeah, Jesus is my religion, but man, what are we going to do about this world? What are we going to do about Donald Trump? What are we going to do about the Democrats? What are we going to do about you know coronavirus? What are we going to do about Al-Qaeda? What are we going to do about all this? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world. Yeah, he's holding it. He holds it, the Bible says, with the word of His power. Let me speak peace over the people of God today. Nothing is going to happen in this world or to this world until Jesus alone gives the final word. Nothing. Nothing. And when He does, when He finally says, that's enough, when He lights the match, as I described earlier, that's not the end. Because he will, he will come and immediately following that day when he gives the final word, he is going to remake this world entirely defect free. Think about that. All the doctors will be out of work. 
All the funeral directors will have to find something else to do. All the home repairmen will have nothing to do. Soldiers, armies, generals will all have to retire. And thank God the politicians will be no more. I knew that would get it. but (laughs) All of those things will be over because Jesus will make everything all new, all defect-free. But today, but today, because you live today, you don't live in that day yet. You will, but you don't live there yet. So today, what I want to remind you of is that Christ is still enthroned and he still sees every single sparrow that falls to the ground. He still has every hair of your head numbered. And that kind of God, what are you going to trade him for? I love Hebrews chapter 1. says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. This universe will fail when Jesus' word fails. But may I remind you that Jesus said this. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, guaranteed. But my word will never pass away. Christ alone, solus Christus, is the Lord of creation. He's the Lord, but he is also more than just the Lord of creation. And all these divine properties. He is the Lord of redemption. In his ministry, he never told a single person how to invite them, how to invite him into their heart. It's, Jesus never said, you know, walk this aisle, pray this prayer, and invite me into your heart. Never once did it. What he did over and over is he called people to repent, to turn from their sin, and to recognize him and him alone, Christus Solus, as the it's sovereign king and the only savior. For, for Paul, this begins uh, with Jesus taking his proper place in his kingdom. And this is how he puts it. He says, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. Let me clarify. We talked about two weeks ago the corruption that, that made these five solas to be defined necessary. But I want you to know Jesus is the head of the body. He's the head of the church. Jesus does not grant authority to popes, to cardinals, to councils, to denominations, to bishops, to priests, to pastors, to missionaries, or Sunday school teachers to lead his church. Christ is the head of the church. And he doesn't recognize, he does not and will not recognize the claim of any person who would usurp such authority. He is the head of his church. Anyone who leads in the church, I'm one of them, must never forget, when me and the other elders gather, we must never forget that this is his church. And we are not the head. And every single one of us serves at the pleasure of the sovereign king. And his model that he showed us as the ultimate pastor, as the ultimate elder, his model was to be the servant of everyone and the dictator of none. He is not only the head that sits atop the church, but he's the foundation that upholds it as well. 
uh, Paul wrote these words to the Corinthians, for no one can lay a foundation for the church, is what he's talking about, other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Therefore, Christ is the only thing. Listen to me carefully, because this sadly is not the case. We're not in the habit of you know, poking at other churches, but this is sadly not the case in way too many churches. But around here, we have determined that Christ is the only thing worth preaching. We don't have anything else. If you're waiting for, as I've said many, many times, if you're waiting for five tips for a happy marriage or 10 tips to uh, be more financially, you know, okay or whatever, you're in the wrong place. Because we can't call people to pursue a God that helps them to be good or meets all their felt needs and yet is ultimately Lord of nothing in their day-to-day lives. That is not the goal of this church. We believe that Jesus matters in every aspect of our lives and He is not an accessory. He's not my new pair of shoes or my nice handbag. He is the Lord. He will not ride shotgun and He demands to be in the driver's seat. And this is why Paul boiled his entire ministry down to the preeminence of Christ. He said these words that are convicting to me often. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. He said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Paul was like, I got one act. I got one story to tell. I have, I'm a very single faceted preacher. All I'm going to talk about is Jesus. Well, how does that play out? Because this is the real world, Mark. What are you going to do? Hey, you got problems in your marriage? Struggling with things? Your relationship with your husband or wife? Your friends? Other relationships? Well, it's not. Clever pop psychology that you need. It is the gospel that says this. Bear each other's burdens. And in so doing, fulfill the law of Christ. Are are your finances spiraling out of control? Good news, there's an app for that. And it's called the gospel. See, the gospel says... From the words of Jesus himself, it says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where thieves don't steal and moths don't, and rust don't corrupt your treasure. And he says, You can't serve God in money. That'll fix your finances real fast if you embrace that. See, the problem, sadly, I don't say this with any kind of looking down my nose or, or superiority, but The problem with too much preaching these days is it trains us. Listen to this carefully because I want you to learn how to discern this for yourself. The problem with too much preaching these days is that it teaches us to manage our sin and strive to become better versions of ourselves instead of teaching us and pleading with us to bow our knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that is the desperate need of men and women everywhere for Jesus to, to like, like a, a conquering army to, of our, our hearts to just come in and take more and more territory. That's what we all need. We don't need to manage our sin. I hate my sin. 
I don't need to become a better version of myself because, man, I didn't start out too great in the first place. Paul goes on to say he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Christ Jesus demonstrated the kind of life, this kind of life for believers when he emerged from the tomb. It was a new kind of life. And over that kind of life, death would have no power. And this doesn't just mean, and we, we boil it down to, to oversimplicity, it doesn't just mean that you'll go to heaven when you die. I hope you will, but it doesn't, it, that's not what it means when it says that, that when I say that this is a model for the kind of life we're going to live. It means that you can right now, long before you're dead, hopefully, it means that you can live your life right now with no fear of anything. Think about that. Every one of us has a dozen different fears every single week. Fears of rejection, intimidation, all those kind of things. Fears of uh, any number of things. But someone who has been given a real reason not to even fear death, what else do you have to fear? Think about that. And Christ, by being the firstborn from the dead, he's removed that fear. Now, that, that, that doesn't, you know, like I said, it doesn't mean that you'll just go to heaven. It means that, that Christ's power is available to you today to live like there's, you know, no fear of tomorrow. Because there shouldn't be. But we talked about money a minute ago, and this is what uh, Paul said, or the writer of Hebrews said on this point. He said in Hebrews 13, he said, keep your life free from the love of money. That's a fear that many of us have. And be content with what you have. For he, Jesus, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Boy, that's good news right there. Excellent news. We live, as I said, with so much fear of hard times, rejection, ridicule. But why do we do that? Why? Christ has removed any reason to fear. We don't need to fear the wrath of God. We don't need to fear the persecution of people. We don't even need to fear our own shortcomings. Why? Because He's daily, daily making us new. And all of this is due solely to Jesus' reconciling work on the cross. God, Christ alone, solus Christus, became man. And we talked about that at the beginning. It's a mind-blowing thought. And he did so to reconcile us to himself through the unlikely vehicle of his own death. Paul puts it in these words, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, meaning he was fully God, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I found a great description of this aspect of Christ's ministry, and I'd like to read it to you. This is how I'm going to close. I'd like to read this to you verbatim. Now, I realize that sometimes when you read lengthy portions to people, it can be kind of, you know, uh, uh, it's hard to, hard to stay engaged. So I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to read this, just about three paragraphs. And I'm going to ask you to do something for me, humor me. If you would, I want you to really get these words. I want them to be absorbed by your soul. And so if you would, just close your eyes. 
Everybody close your eyes and listen to these words. This is a description of what Christ has done on the cross, especially for you who have A, never considered it, and B, who haven't considered it deeply enough for a long time. Listen to these words. God is not only perfectly holy, but the source and pattern of holiness. He is the origin and the upholder of the moral order of the universe. He must be just. The judge of all the earth must do right. Therefore, it was impossible by the necessities of his own being that he should deal lightly with sin and compromise the claims of holiness. If sin could be forgiven at all, it must be on some basis which would vindicate the holy law of God, which is not a mere code, but the moral order of the whole creation. But such vindication must be supremely costly. Costly to whom? Not the forgiven sinner. For there could be no price asked from him for his forgiveness, both because the cost is far beyond his reach and because God loves to give and not to sell. Therefore, God himself undertook to pay a cost, to offer a sacrifice so tremendous that the gravity of his condemnation of sin would be absolutely beyond question even as he forgave it. While at the same time, the love which impelled him to pay the price would be the wonder of the angels and would call for the worshiping gratitude of the redeemed sinner. On Calvary, this price was paid, paid by God. The Son giving himself, bearing our sin and its curse, the Father giving his Son, his only Son, whom he loved. But it was paid by God become man, who not only took the place of guilty man, but also was his representative. He offered himself as a sacrifice in our stead, bearing our sin in his own body on the tree. He suffered not only awful physical anguish, but the unthinkable spiritual horror of becoming identified with the sin to which he was infinitely opposed. He thereby came under the curse of sin so that for a time even his perfect fellowship with the Father was broken. Thus, God proclaimed his infinite abhorrence of sin by being willing to suffer all of that in place of the guilty ones in order that he might justly forgive Thus, the love of God found its perfect fulfillment because he did not hold back from even the uttermost sacrifice in order that we might be saved from eternal death. What I want you to know this morning is that only Jesus could have done this. Only Jesus. Solus Christus. Christ alone. And it is for this reason that we look to him alone to be the author and the finisher of our faith. What that means is that if you're in, he got you in. If you're going to make it to the end, you're going to make it to the end in him. 
This is, this is the whole thing. He's the author, he's the finisher. From our calling and eternity past that Ephesians describes to the moment we first believe and all the way to that glorious day when we stand before him, free from sin, free from death, in thanks and worship forever. It was Christ alone who has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And Paul says that our hope is secure as long as we stay grounded in faith, not shifting from the hope of this gospel in Jesus Christ alone. I'm going to ask our communion workers to come and assist me. Jesus alone, the sad state of our church, of our, not, you know, not necessarily here, although we're prone to it as anybody else, but of the American church, is that we have added so many other things, so much, you know, so many accessories to the message of Solus Christus, of Christ alone. And there is no better place than around the table of the Lord, the communion table, to say, okay, I am refocusing. I am <laughs> coming again, as we've talked about before in this message, coming back to Lord Jesus, and I am remembering his lordship, and I'm laying everything in his hands. And I may have to lay it again tomorrow, and again on Tuesday, and again on, no, on Wednesday and Thursday, etc. But today, I'm laying it in his hands. I am declaring that there is nothing appealing to me except for Christ Jesus, as Paul said, and him crucified. And what a beautiful picture of his crucifixion do we have here at the table. We have bread that represents the brokenness of his body, nails that pierced his hands, a spear that pierced his sides, a crown of thorns that, that pierced his head. And from all those wounds, precious blood flowed. And the Old Testament book of Leviticus says, The life is in the blood. Nothing's changed. For you this morning, if you need life, the life is in the blood. Now this is juice. It's grape juice. It's bread. Nothing magical about these things, but what they represent is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And Christ has commanded us to do this often so that we would remember him. And, and it's kind of like our weekly re-up to say, okay, I, I've been confused and, and chasing and pursuing all kinds of other things this week, but I'm coming back to the cross of Jesus and him crucified. Now, I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that I am not talking to 100% of people who are believers in the Lord Jesus. I know it. If you're thinking, ah, I wonder if he's talking about me, I probably am. Because, it's, But that's not, a, that's not an indictment. It's not a finger wagging at you. Because everyone I'm talking to who is a believer in Jesus was once where you are. And every one of them who have put their trust in Christ would look to you that they would plead with you and they'd say, come and join us. You will not find life anywhere else. I quote you again, John fourteen six. I am the way. You don't have options. I am the truth. Immediately saying every other pursuit is a lie. And I am the life. And everything else 
leads to death. So can I just invite you, it would be terrible to preach a message about Christ alone and not invite you. If you have not made a decision, if you have not said, I am going to follow Jesus Christ, or if you're unclear, if you think, well, baptized when I was five, but I, I, you know, I don't really, haven't really had any real life change, don't be ashamed of that. My goodness, let us invite you to get that right. Now, we're not the kind of church that's going to invite you to make a, weep, uh, a weeping walk up forward and, and in front of everybody and raise your hand and pray in front of everybody. But listen to me. Please listen to me. Have some guts this morning for the sake of your own soul. I want to talk to you. Would you do me a favor if I'm talking to you? And I know there's people I'm talking to. It just takes your response. I'm talking to you. Will you please seek me out after this service? And let me talk to you. Let me pray with you. Let me, let me invite you into a real life in Christ Jesus. I also want to say that if you're here and you haven't made that decision, would you just stay in your seat? Because Not because we don't want to invite you to this. This isn't a snack. This isn't refreshments. This is the body and the blood of Jesus, and it would mean nothing to you. It's not an insult. It's not an indictment. It just wouldn't mean anything to you. It doesn't mean anything to you if, if if you have not made him the Lord of your life. And so we, we want to just uh, ask you to just respect this moment and stay in your seat. And then as soon as service is over, find me. And we'll, we'll talk about how you too can be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and find the way, find the truth, find the life. Because it's out there. It's waiting for you. And we want to help you. So um, let's pray. And then I'm going to read the words of, in, or I'm actually going to read the words of institution. Then I'm going to pray and we're going to invite you to come forward. Paul says, for I received from the Lord... What I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this blood is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. In remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's like Jesus did, let's give thanks right now, especially with all these reminders. Lord, we thank you for your body. We thank you for your blood. We thank you that that the Bible says that when we were still sinners, not when we got our, our stuff together, but when we were still sinners, you died for us, Lord. And we thank you for that, Lord. We we love and and, and just... Uh, glorify you this morning for your great love to us. And so, Father, we pray that our hearts would be moved to center ourselves on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And, Lord, we cannot do that through vows. We can only do it through the regenerating power of your Holy Spirit. And so we just invite you to come now, Holy Spirit, make us new and show us Jesus. Show us Jesus. Let Jesus be alive in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, you may come.